to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by the SATC Solutions Center. You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. We are continuing our series with nonprofits here leading up to Giving Tuesday. And so we're so excited that we get to learn more about Inspiration Corp. And we have Shannon Stewart, its executive director and CEO, joining us today. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you and to get to learn more about you and uh, the work that Inspiration Corp is doing. Um, I have to admit, we were looking at different organizations that we'd like to highlight on the podcast for Nonprofit Month. And um, so I was looking at uh, mission statements and sort of what a lot of these nonprofits were doing here in the Chicago community. And and your organization really stood out to me. I think it's really inspirational, I guess, hence the name of the the corporation. It's really inspirational what what y'all are doing. And and these numbers, even during the COVID times, are just really inspiring to me. And so I'm I'm excited for you to share that with our listeners. Cool. No, that's great. I definitely appreciate it. So Shannon, if I remember correctly, you grew up in Indiana, our neighbor to the east. And so I know that it's pretty similar to growing up here in Illinois, or at least where I'm from, which is downstate Illinois, but it's pretty different than here in Chicago. So can you share with us a little bit about what life was like for you as a child? Sure. Um, And, you know, I'm not shy about being called a Hoosier. I've learned to accept that um, (laughs) phrase. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I think... um, Chicago is definitely a lot different than my childhood. I um, come from, my parents grew up on farms and were the first to go to college in their family. Um, And so a lot of my childhood, younger, or really the beginning years were spent um, on my parents, uh, both my parents, uh, the farms that they grew up on. Um, And also I would say throughout, you know, really until I was, uh, became a young adult um, in smaller cities, in uh in indiana which were small compared to chicago but definitely um you know large for indiana so definitely grew up with a mixture of kind of country and urban life if you consider um (laughs) cities in in uh in indiana as being urban but my um uh parents actually um started out in education and so um we we actually moved around a lot um so i've lived all over um indiana the northern part the central part and the southern part Would you say that those parts are pretty similar to each other or did you see distinct differences sort of between northern and southern Indiana or... Yeah, there's definitely differences between um, northern and southern Indiana. Um, the, you know, I think it's more, you know, Indiana is also just a very weird um, as far in the, again, my opinion, my experiences of just um, even when you look at, you know, political affiliations and, you know, I think there, you know, some parts of southern Indiana, people feel like people, uh, people that are in northern Indiana, especially close to the Chicago area, that they're from the region. They're not really, um, uh, don't really fully represent Indiana. And um, I would say that, you know, southern Indiana is definitely more of a, at least from my experiences, more of a um, a country feel, just in more of just more open, wider spaces um, and more countryside um, than the northern part of Indiana. But yeah, I think that, I think overall, I think in Indiana, everyone's very proud, uh, you know, everyone plays basketball (laughs) and is very (laughs) proud of that tradition. Um, And so there's definitely things that, that unite the whole um, state together. Uh, I'm a big basketball fan, so we won't get started on that because we'll never (laughs) stop talking about it. But I I definitely (laughs) know a lot of the, the tradition of the Indiana schools and their basketball and of course, watch Hoosiers, so one of the best movies 
ever made, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree with that. You know, I actually, I grew up playing basketball. My dad was my high school basketball coach. Um, I went to Indiana University, was there when Bobby Knight was there. Um, mm-hmm. So with all the the fun things that happened between uh, him and, and the president of the Indiana University, because he was definitely a character. Yeah, I'm sure that was uh, kind of wild to see as like a 20-year-old student. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I was there when, uh, in 1989, when, uh, Indiana won the NCAA double, the men's did won the NCAA double NCAA, yeah. uh, national championship in basketball. That's awesome. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned that your parents were educators because whenever we talk to, uh, people who were children of educators, they always share about, what they learned from their parents about the importance, not just of education, obviously, but the importance of the the type of people that they wanted to be or that they strive to be. Can you tell me about your parents' influence over you uh, in terms of the importance of getting a good education, but also sort of how that may have framed some of your moral or moral compass or your values? Um, yeah, I think, you know, my parents um, definitely, I, when I think about growing up, um, it was definitely a household that um, where there was a lot of curiosity, there was a lot of um, my question, or, you know, my parents really encouraging at the time, I have a, an older brother, biological brother that's five years older than me. And then when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s, we adopted um, for um for other uh, siblings, so other brothers and sisters that I have. And so, you know, I think um, growing up for my brother and I, um, you know, my parents were definitely open to, you know, talking with us about asking questions about what we thought about things in the world, having discussions around that, um, that I think probably was came a little bit from their training um, as educators. Um, I just, you know, I kind of laugh a little bit because when I was little, I remember asking my mom and dad, like, you know, what, how did you get interested in going into education? And I was expecting this, you know, this great, very thoughtful, (laughs) very passionate. And, you know, like, so we knew that we didn't want to be farmers. And at the time there was a need (laughs) for teachers. And so we went into, when we were, we went to college and we studied education and that's how we got interested Uh in it. And, um, and so, you know, I, I uh, definitely appreciate that about them. Um, the values that I learned from my um, parents were to, um, it's hard to put it, I mean, I guess the ways that, that what I think about it as um, growing up, you know, I had an older brother um, and then, so there was me, I'm female. Um, and so my parents never really stuck to these, these are, you know, here are girl things that you should be doing and here are boy things that um, my brother should be doing. There was really this openness to um, be, to to kind of discover who you are. And they encouraged everything. Like if I was interested in whatever I was interested in, then my mom and dad would find a class. I did art. I played tennis. um, I took music lessons. Um, Their whole thing was really about, you know, find what you like to do and then um, pursue that. And if it's something at a point in time that you're not interested in, that's fine, but at least you explored it. And I think, you know, that definitely set me up for, um, um, you know, as I became a, an adult and thinking about the career that I wanted to do, um, I really wanted to do something that um, felt that it was just part, it was part of what I liked doing. It made me happy. It was, um, I wanted to be able to contribute um, to making the world better. And so I was really grounded in that when I was um, in college and, and also when I went to graduate school. And I definitely feel like even even now, um, several years later, I definitely feel like I made the right choice. I'm in the field that I, that I need to be in and that I enjoy being in. Wow. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, share with me about being a little girl. We, we had some earlier episodes that kind of talked about diversity and, and we talked a little more about it in the legal field, but it's something that I like to hear from our guests about, you know, their experience with being any level of diverse um, and, and in this situation about being a little girl growing up in the Midwest and sort of if you, it sounded like your parents really equipped you to be able to do anything that you wanted, but um, do you feel like you kind of had the same 
education and the same opportunities that boys did in your community? Um, I definitely feel that I, I feel that way when I um, I had one experience when I was in college, but I would say up until that point in college, um, I definitely didn't feel like there was any um, any difference. But I think a lot of that was that I was I was very vocal about what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was a tomboy. Um, I uh, didn't I played with Barbies may, maybe for a little bit, but um, I was definitely the the girl that would go to school and come back with mud all over her clothes and um, and, and, and that type of stuff. And so I think, uh, you know, my um, I didn't really notice differences like that. Um, when I was younger, um, I would say once I hit um, puberty, um, I did notice like the conversations that my mom would have with me would start to change a little bit. Um, I think my mom just thought the tomboy um, thing was going to be just a phase and that, you know, at some point I would want to be, I'd be interested in wearing makeup and, and wearing dresses and, and those type of things. Not that she wanted me to, to do that, but um, and uh, so I remember having conversations like around 13 or 14 where my mom was like trying to like push me into how, you know, what do you think about putting on some lipstick or all this other stuff? And I just, you know, I really pushed against um, against that. And I would say that's probably where um, I started noticing. But it wasn't necessarily an education. I just noticed that there was a difference between, you know, I was now becoming more going to become a woman, so to speak, I guess. And I think my mom, from my mom, it really came from the perspective of that she didn't want me to to um, she didn't she she didn't want me to um, run into issues where people, you know, where I was either teased or yeah. people treated me differently because I wasn't um, the in the the I think the normal gender role. Um, for women, I think it more came out of that concern than um, anything else, because my mom was, you know, when I was growing up, my mom was not a stay at home mom. My mom was working um, when I was growing up. And most of my friends um, in the 70s, their moms were homemakers and they were at home um, after school. And so mm -hmm. my mom was very is very much a strong and independent person. So I think she definitely enjoyed, you know, she welcomed that and appreciated that in me, but she was definitely afraid of how the world, I guess, would perceive me. Yeah, I, I learned in my life that um, one of the things that I, I thought my parents would, you know, if, my, if I thought my parents were going to react a certain way, it wasn't generally because of me or who I was. It was their fear of the way the world would perceive me or would treat me because of a certain aspect of me. And so I think when you understand that you really, one, I think it, see, it helps you see your parents in, in a different way and in a way that, um, you know, it's like, man, it's got to be so tough to be a parent and to have to worry about all these things. But also it's like, you know, I can communicate to them. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> like I've gone through a lot. I've dealt with a lot, but I'm going to be okay. Yeah, no, it was interesting because, you know, at the same time, you know, I definitely was probably a little closer to my dad growing up than to my mom. But um, but at the you know, the same time, I, my mom's kind of having these conversations. I'm you know, my dad is pretty much, you know, hey, you know what is it that you like to do, you know, definitely supporting me in whatever, you know, whatever my interests were and however I wanted to be. I never really got um, any concerns from my father on, you know, how I was dressing and those type of things. It was more about just be true to yourself. Um, so I kind of had these, both of these things kind of going on at the same time um, as I was as a teenager and as a young adult. And, you know, I'm not, to, you know, I definitely struggled. There were, you know, I think there's a period in, in people's lives or as a kid that, you know, you have this um, image of your parents or um, you, you know, you look up to your parents and it's not to say yeah. that I don't look up to my parents anymore, but you have this moment, I think, of innocence of like that your parents are, there's no flaws in them whatsoever. And then I think there's things that happen as you get older. Um, and, you know, for me, it was um, when I um, did come out to my parents, um, the, that they definitely had some concerns around me being gay. And, um, you know, that definitely was a big struggle in my life with them. And I, um, and where I, I had disappointment because I did not expect, um, you know, my parents to have the conversation that they were having with me about, um, that it was 
okay to feel that way, but you can't be that way. And, and, um, because I was totally opposite than the conversations or, you know, what my growing up was, um, my experience with them. And again, that came, you know, after really talking with them, um, about that. And I have a wonderful relationship with my parents, um, now and for have been for several years um of that it was really just the fear of they didn't want something bad to happen to me yeah. that that's where it was coming from and i think you know that's you know the lesson that i learned from that is that parents are human um but also that that when there are challenges that you have to you have to talk about them you have to you know i have to challenge my assumptions my parents had to challenge their assumptions yeah. and that the only way that you learn from those experiences is being able to communicate and really talk through that. Shannon, I really appreciate you um, sharing that and, and being vulnerable enough to share that with a bunch of people that you don't know. So <laughs> yeah. um, I think it's there's so much power in sharing our stories. That's why we do this podcast, because we just want to create a platform for, for people to share their stories so that we can get to know each other a little better and, mm -hmm. and be inspired by each other. So I definitely appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. I want to talk about your decision to go to college. A lot of people, you know, college is a time where it's like you're, you're trying to figure out the rest of your life in this very awkward kind of part of your life. So tell me about uh, going to Indiana University. And I know that you studied uh, social work, but is that what you went into school thinking you were going to study and kind of stuck with it? Or did you bounce around a little bit to share about your college experience at Indiana? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I went to college. Um, you know, as a kid, I wanted to either be a comedian or a psychologist. Um, I don't know how those two fit together. Um, maybe making people feel good. Um, but um, when I went into college, when I started college, I think you had until by your junior year, you had to declare your major. And so I did not declare my major until my junior year. I took a lot of classes in genetics and all sociology, psychology. Um, you know, I went to some of my friends' classes that I wasn't enrolled in, um, philosophy and those type of things. Um, but uh, I uh, decided that um, psychology, the, the psychology classes that I was taking, that that seemed to resonate with me um, the most that I seemed to have, you know, that seemed to motivate me to want to, you know, kind of understanding how people act the way they do, um, what influences that, um, uh, really interested me. And so um, my junior year, I declared my um, major in psychology. And then I really didn't get into social work and looking at that point of it until my senior year in college, I took an intro to social work um, class that um, really expanded my perspective. And so, you know, again, this is my personal experience. Um, you know, for psychology, I was very interested in that, uh, very interested in the mind behaviors, how people, why people behave the certain ways that they do. Um, but when I took the social work class, it really opened me up to um, thinking about, you know, there's more than just, we're more than just individuals walking around um, on this earth that we're also, we have a family, we have friends, we have, um, you know, a social group, many social groups that we're interacting with this environment around us and that that environment also influences um, uh, how we behave and how we think about ourselves. And so that really just opened my eyes to like, hey, psychology is a little too narrow for me. I want to have this broader perspective. Um, it fits more with, um, you know, how I feel about the world um, and um, more my interests of what I want to do. And so really taking that class, um, that's when I made the decision in my senior year is like, okay, I want to go to graduate. I want to get a master's in social work. Um, I was thinking that I would become a clinical um, social worker. And, you know, even after graduating, um, uh, getting my bachelor's degree and going into a master's program, my first year was, you know, very focused on clinical social work. And even that became too narrow for me. I was like, I needed to be a broader. And so I actually, um, I have a master's in social work, but my concentration was in community organizing and social administration. So I definitely, you know, thinking about, you know, how the policies, um, how they, policies that are impacted or implemented, um, you know, both at federal, state, local levels, you know, even 
with agencies, programs, institutions, how they impact um, um, people and, and their lives and, and kind of thinking about how do you work to kind of make change both with individuals but also with the system. I think that's a long about way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really interesting because I think about those things and, you know, as a non-social worker and someone not in the field, you know, I think about the way that I interact with social systems, with both government and NGOs, non-government organizations. And so, you know, one of the things that I've learned a lot from the people who come on here is, you know, it's kind of this dance between the two of, you know, either we're interacting with these social administrations or we have people interact with, interacting with them on our behalf, people like Inspiration Corp or, you know, other social service organizations. And so, you know, it, it really helps put into perspective for me as to the expertise it takes to do that and sort of the the drive that it takes to, to want to do that because it is very difficult. And I know even for us, you know, when we go, for example, to get a driver's license, it's like, for, yeah, it can seem like a fairly simple thing. You get the papers, you take them to the DMV, you do the thing, you stand in line for four hours, blah, blah, blah. But um, just kind of stepping back from that and thinking it's not that simple for all people. And and what seems easy to me, uh, you know, other people have had barriers to that or, you know, hurdles to jump over in order to get the same results are the same services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the one that kind of what what you were sharing there kind of reminded me of like an experience that I had in, in grad school of um, I was doing um, I was working at an agency and they were doing some leadership development um, work with women who were receiving um, WIC um, coupons. That's women and infants and children. So it was a supplemented um for um, food and um, like baby formula, that type of stuff. And it was, you know, it was interesting, you know, that you, I think we walk, I walk through life. I grew up in a middle-class family um, and, you know, my experiences with, you know, different systems and everything. But that experience for me, was like actually talking to women who were, you know, would talk about, hey, here's some of the issues that we're having in, you know, staying, you know, being able to, make sure that we do everything that we need to do in order to continue to receive the WIC coupons and, you know, learning things like, you know, at the time, so this was like in the the early nineties at the time, you know, the WIC office would schedule everybody for a nine thirty appointment. And so, you know, there might be 200 people that all have a nine thirty appointment that by no means are they all going to be seen at nine thirty. And so, you know, just talking to women about, so this was my experience. I got to get my kid to school. Um, I got to get them on the bus to school. I have to do these type of things. And then I go and I might sit at, a, at this for my appointment for an hour and a half to two hours before I see anybody. But there's these other things that I need to do in order to, you know, get through my day. And it's just, you know, that was an eye opening experience for me of just of realizing that, yes, we have these every we think about, oh, this WIC program, it's great that we have this. It's Why can't it be so hard for people to follow all the rules that need to happen for this, but not really, you know, being able to step back and see like, well, there's some things and I don't think that it's intentional. I think it's just, um, you know, from that, the WIC office, I think it was just, they were trying to manage the best that they could, but it's not, I think it's looking at these are, there might be policies that are great, but they may not get you know, implemented um, in a way that's really useful for people and being able to step back and see that. And then, you know, part of what my work was, was to work with the women on kind of putting down what their concerns were and and, and maybe some ideas of, of how that could be resolved and then having conversations with the leadership um, at the WIC office um, and being able to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Did you go into social work directly out of college? Um, I did. So I went straight through from um, once I got my undergraduate degree, then I went to um, graduate school and got my degree. And then I uh, spent a few months in Indiana and then I uh, came to Chicago and I've been in Chicago ever since. Is this uh, like where you wanted to end up? Did you think you would come here or was it a surprise for you to end up in Chicago? 
Um, I really thought, so I did my graduate school work out on the East Coast in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and I really thought that I was going to stay out on the East Coast. Like I wanted to, at the time, I'm like, I want to live in New York City. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and because I just wanted to be, you know, my experience from growing up in Indiana is like, you know, I grew up in these small towns where everybody knew you. And, um, you know, one of the things I liked about going to Indiana University is that, you know, I was, you know, my class, I think, was had 5,000 people in it, you know, my graduating mm-hmm. class. And so, you know, you became more of a number, so to speak, um, which for me allowed me to kind of, I think actually gave me even more freedom to kind of explore who I was and, and who I wanted to be because I, you know, not everybody knew who I was. Um, and uh, so I wanted to like, you know, I was really interested in these big cities, but I, I have to say, you know, that the East Coast was wonderful and everything, but there, I really, my time there, the couple of years that I was there, I really miss there. There's something about the Midwest. Um, and the best way that I can explain this is my first day in Baltimore, Maryland, I was getting, had to take the bus to um, my internship that was, you know, and you know, it's the Baltimore's not on the grid system. It's, you know, all these circular things. So I get on this bus and I think it's the bus that's going to take me to my internship. That's like out in the burbs. And I, you know, I say, good morning. Does this bus go to such and such? And the bus driver says to me, does it say that it goes to such and such? And I was like, (laughs) no. (laughs) So, So I just sat down, took my seat, Compare that to my first day in Chicago, um, where I'm like getting on a bus, uh, I want to go someplace. Um, and I get on a bus and I ask the bus driver, like, hey, I, I need to get to this place. Is this, will this bus take me? Am I on the right bus and everything? He's like, oh, he's like, you know what? It will definitely take you there. And then there is this restaurant on the, that you need to check out on this side. Like, it was just like this whole friendly conversation um, of, of uh, that's just a very much Midwestern feel that I think that you yeah. don't realize that until you, I think live outside of the Midwest that um, that that's actually just a natural course of, you know, natural part of life. I, I enjoyed being able to say good morning to people in Chicago and people would tell me good morning back. Um, I didn't necessarily I learned in when I was in graduate school on the East Coast that not to say good morning to everybody because I got weird looks. So, <laughs> Yeah, definitely don't always get that in all places, but um Midwest definitely has a unique sort of, it's not quite Southern, so it doesn't have that that complete Southern feel, but it definitely is different than East Coast or even West Coast life. Um, although I've lived in Illinois most of my life, so I, I feel lucky to, to have grown up here. Yeah, no, I, and you know, I, um, and so I wanted to, I knew, I realized I didn't fully answer your question. I knew I didn't want to live in Indiana. I knew that I wanted to live in a, in a bigger city. Um, I just like the diversity, um, and all the different experiences that are, you're surrounded by. So I, I Mm -hmm. knew when I came back, like, yeah, Chicago's seems like a, a good size city for me to be living in and it's in the Midwest. So it's perfect. Yeah. And so now you're in Chicago you're looking for work. Um, how did you kick off your career here in the city? I um, actually volunteered for an agency at the time. It was called the Urban Life Center. Um, and I volunteered. Um, they did like a to be like a, a, a house um, manager for they worked with um, small colleges throughout the Midwest um, and brought um the students there for what they called like a January term. So for the month of January. So I moved to Chicago on New Year's Eve of 1991. Um, not time that I suggest that people move to Chicago in the middle of winter. Um, but uh, I volunteered um, as this kind of house manager um, to kind of oversee um, the students that were coming in because they, they came and they lived, we lived in like in a dormitory type setting. Um, you know, I was in charge of the meals um, and um, also um, I worked with some other volunteers. We were all in charge of the meals, um, but also getting the the students to different places. So it was really about just taking, you know, 20 days that they were here in Chicago and just having them absorb everything about the city. I learned, um, you know, we took the train everywhere. I learned, you know, we went to all different types of neighborhoods, Southern part, West, West side, North side, South side, um, and learned a lot about the city. And, um, I actually had an opportunity, um, 
because the the agency that I was volunteering for, um, I let them know that I was interested in um, moving to Chicago. And so I actually had an opportunity to volunteer at um, one of the agencies um, that they worked with. So I volunteered, I think, a couple of days a week. Um, it was Southwest Women Working Together um, at the time and um, just kind of volunteered there for a while. And um, for, for those 20 days that I was here in Chicago and there was a job opening that came open in um, at the agency to be a job placement specialist in their um employment training program. They worked with um, low-income women to help them become employed. And so I applied for that position. And I so I just kind of fell into the workforce development um, kind of field of the nonprofit world um, and started out as, as a job placement specialist where I was working one-on-one with women, um, helping them on their job search, uh, doing their resumes, doing interview skills, and getting them connected to job opportunities and then providing support once they became employed. So I always find it interesting the things we learn early on that kind of stick with us. Can you tell us can you tell us something that you learned kind of in that program and then starting in there full time um, that has stuck with you over the years that you kind of still apply today? Yeah, um, I think the the biggest um, thing that's really struck me from that time that has really stuck with me um, is that, and I think it just goes back to the, um, and I feel like there's been a lot of experiences throughout my life and through every, I think we all experience this. So just like, you know, your family does something a certain way. And the first time that you go spend the night at your friend's house and their Mm -hmm. family does something differently that you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, you mean you don't do it this way? So um, um, I think my my experience was around that. So the the place where um, the students where we where I lived for those that month in January um, and where the students lived was in actually um, Solinsky's uh, neighborhood, the back of the yard. So in New City um, uh, neighborhood in Chicago, and um, <laughs> I did say so when my parents came and dropped me off um, at the Urban Life Center. They were located in Hyde Park, um, in you know very nice looking area. And when my parents left, and then they drove me to they drove me west to. Uh, the new city neighborhood. Um, when I got out, I'm like, I'm so happy that you didn't have my parents drop me off here because they probably wouldn't let me, you know, they told, would have told me to get right back in the car because, you know, we were definitely in a neighborhood that, um, that, you know, there was gang activity. There was, you just, you know, there was, you know, abandoned buildings, um, uh, kind of scattered throughout. It was just a different experience. And, you know, for me, that month that I was there, I was just like, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a kid. Like if I think about me being a kid and living in this area in Chicago, what was my, what would be my perspective on life, on the outlook on life? You know, I'm, you know, there, you know, the billboards, I, for some reason I was struck the billboards, all the billboards that I saw in the neighborhood were of, you know, people, it was Colt 45 or, you know, was drinking or smoking. And, um, and then a lot of just abandoned buildings. And it was just like, I can't imagine what it feels like to, to live here. Um, and it was just such a different experience. And I think that has really stuck with me about that, to really challenge my assumptions um, and even like my, my values, my middle-class values to really um, step back and, and realize that not everybody has walked in my shoes and, and have experienced what I've experienced and that I really need to step back um, to really know someone and really to help someone to step back and kind of try to walk in their shoes. Um, and it's not going to be exactly the same, but to, to at least try to understand where someone's coming from. And I think that's probably the, the biggest thing that I've took from that experience that has still still lives with me today um, in how I think about um, even what we do at, at Inspiration Corporation. Yeah, and let's talk about Inspiration Corporation because I definitely feel like it is aptly named um, after getting to, to learn more about it. Um, and so I would like you to share first, like just the basic mission of, of what you do there and, and what Inspiration Corp is all about. Sure. So um, at Inspiration Corporation, you know, our mission is really to work with people to 
basically help them achieve the goals that they want to achieve. Um, and our work is really focused on um, helping people to become stably housed, um, helping them to become employed, also providing um, nutritional meals. And so we do, our programming is mostly, um, you know, focused on those on those areas. And we do work with people, um, our mission um, is to work with people who are um, experiencing homelessness or poverty to really help them improve their lives and, and achieve self-sufficiency. And I think the, you know, what I love about um, Inspiration Corporation is that our philosophy is really about um, really being like a facilitator, like helping people, um, meeting people where they're at, and then and and working with them and finding out what it is that they want to do, what they want to achieve, and then working with them to um, achieve that. We're not here um, about to tell people like, well, this is what you need to do. You need to be focused on this, you know, or you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't think about wanting to achieve that. That's not something that you're going to be able to do. We we need you to be focused on this. It's really about sitting down and talking with people and finding out what it is that they that they want, what their dreams are, um, what they want to achieve, and really help them to um, to do that. And again, there might be, you know, they, they might learn along the way that, hey, I wanted to do this, but that's th- something that's probably that I'm not going to be able to achieve, but I'm interested in doing, you know, but this is what I've learned from that, and I want to go someplace else. So I think it's more about, you know, supporting people um, in that regard. But I can also share specifically what we do since I know I've, that was very general. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, that's, that is a lot of what I wanted people to learn because I think what you said about helping people achieve their goals is really important where sometimes when we think about service organizations, they kind of have this very narrow, very detailed uh, service that they provide and it's like we, this is what we do and this is how we help people which is always great and and one of the things that we've learned here is there are so many organizations doing so many really good things in our community and so that's why we love to highlight highlight them and, and share them with people um, but you know even when people are going somewhere to help get resourced or to help just understand how they can you know, go through life to be a successful adult, a successful parent or whatever it is that they want to be, um, to have people who say, you know, what is it that you want? What, is, what are your goals? What do you want out of this? I think is, is really important. And, and I really appreciate that, that you guys do that because I think, you know, we can get wrapped up in we're providing something to them. But, you know, one of the things that we've learned here is that people are so often and so much more of the time providing something to us. Um, and that's the way I felt with our podcast where it's like when when we get a guest to come on, I think, OK, we're going to ask these questions and we're going to, you know, give them a platform to speak and they're going to share with our listeners. And then we walk away going, man, I learned so much from that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming you kind of experienced the same thing there at Inspiration Corporation. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I feel very privilege to, um, have the job that I have and to, I mean, I've learned so much from people that have come through our programs, um, about, you know, their lives. And, um, I've learned a lot about resiliency. Um, I, you know, I feel, um, especially now during, you know, the, the pandemic, um, you know, we've seen a great need for, um, just, food, you know, uh, a simple thing of having a meal. And I, um, with, we kind of transitioned. So one of the programs that we do, it's our meals program. And it was set up where before COVID, it's like a cafe setting where if you are a participant in our program, you could come in, um, you have a, you're greeted by a volunteer who's your server. We also have volunteers that are preparing um, the meal and you, you know, we have a menu kind of like on a whiteboard because it changes from day to day. Um, So you sit down at a cafe table, you're, you know, interacting with other um, people as well. And someone takes your order. Um, first off, they recognize you, say good morning or good afternoon or good evening. And um, they uh, uh, take your order and then um, you're served this meal. Well, when 
the pandemic hit, um, you know, our thinking was like, well, we're not going to, one, we, we can't, we got to be shut down. We can't be serving people inside. But even when it was, could we, when we were thinking about, could we even serve people inside? It's like, it's going to be so limited for us to maintain, like, you know, follow the CDC guidelines of like how many people we could serve at a time. And there's such a great need. We decided that we would switch our meal program to be um, a meal distribution from noon to one, where we hmm. would provide a hot meal and also a cold meal. So people would at least get two meals um, and they, they could come and pick them up um, during that noon hour. And so I, I work that on every Tuesday. Um, I, I've been working that, um, doing the lunch shift, taking people's orders, greeting them. Um, we, we usually have maybe two or three different hot meals that they can pick from. Um, and it's just incredible of um, people even early on just saying, thank you so much for being here because I just, I don't know where my next meal is going to be or, you know, people are really struggling, you know, the shelters are struggling because, you know, they're not able to, you know, they don't, they also have, you know, they don't have volunteers coming in because everyone's being careful about um, the the pandemic, pandemic and everything. And so mm-hmm. just the people just saying that, this is one less thing that I have to worry about um, through my day and just how simple a meal um, meant to someone. And like, and just to have a hot meal, it's like I've been eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and yeah. I really appreciate being a- able to have a hot meal. So, Yeah. And, and I want to share this because this number, I saw this and I was like, whoa, this is insane. Um, that in three and a half months at the start of the pandemic and the first uh, so from March 15th to June 30th, uh, I read that you served 13,431 meals um, were distributed by Inspiration Corporation, which is a crazy number of meals to serve or to give in a time where it, you know, you had to really change gears very quickly and figure out a new way of doing something that you've been doing for quite a while. And so, I mean, that's a really awesome number to see of you know, the the 163 households served uh, 13,000, over 13,000 meals is just really uh, uh, kudos to you and your team, because I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, no, and just to put it in perspective, we probably serve that number of meals like in a six month time period on our regular when the, you know, cafe schedule when it's mm-hmm. people can come inside. And so in like three and a half months, we did half a year's worth of of meals, um, which it just shows the need. And, and I really have to I mean, and we couldn't have done it without there were volunteers that um, purchased the food for us for snacks and, and to put into the, the cold lunches. A lot of corporations that just donated um, food as well to allow us to make the hot meals. Like it, it really was a village that um, helped us. And we wouldn't have been able to do all of that without the support from the volunteers and in and, um, and foundations and corporations and individuals who supported um, our work. It's just, it's incredible. It's um it's a lot. And I think, you know, I'd also add what we did. Um, in addition, we also started serving meals on the west side of Chicago. So we have a, um, a restaurant social enterprise called Inspiration Kitchens um, that was closed during this time period that you were talking about between March 15th through June 30th. Um, uh, and what we did is we there was a need. Um, we actually got um, contacted by one of um, uh, one of our individual donors, um, major donor who um, had said, hey, I see like I, I feel like there's something we can do here. We have, um, you know, you have a restaurant. There definitely are shelters and housing programs and street outreach programs on the west side that could definitely use help with having meals. And so we actually um, served at produced out of our Inspiration Kitchens um, site, we produced over 6,000 meals during that time period that we then gave to um, partner agencies that then distributed to people in their program. Yeah, it's so cool to hear about these uh, organizations that partner together to make these things happen. It just is, is really inspiring. And it does show that every little bit helps of, for people who give of their time or their resources. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. It really does make a difference and it impacts people's actual lives. Yes, tremendously. I mean, that is, I, I mean, we're still, it's, it's October, what, 13th? And they're, you know, we're <laughs> still seeing people that are, that come in for the meals to say thank you for being here and doing this because it really has helped it's still helping me because you know i'm still i'm still struggling 
I still yeah. need help. Yeah. I'm interested to hear about what you learned about the Chicago community during this time, because, you know, I think we're all trying to see the best and everything right now. It's a difficult time, but we're all just trying to see the good. And, and so I'd love for you to share with people the good that you've seen in the Chicago community and the people that you serve and the people who work alongside you. Um, that's really inspired you during this time. Yeah. You know, I, I really, the philanthropic community, um, the foundations, the corporations, United Way, um, really came together very quickly. Um, uh, once the, once the, the state of Illinois, um, was shut down and just through, you know, had, um, you know, provided opportunities for our agency as well as other nonprofits to what do you need to respond to COVID to make sure that people are going to stay housed, that they're going to get meals, that they're going to still get the basic um, needs or, you know, whatever needs need to be met, that they can still um, receive that. And it was just It was amazing um, the amount of support that came from um, that community to really help nonprofits. Um, If that hadn't been there, um, there would have been a lot of nonprofits that would have been struggling to keep their doors open. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there was also a lot of flexibility um, with our um, government grants that we received through the state and through the the city of Chicago, a lot of the, 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 that is federal money that's passed down through the state and through the city of Chicago and their flexibility in being able to, you know, still like, tell us how you're going to still work with people, what they need, what you're going to do and the flexibility that, you know, we're going to continue to, you can still, you know, you're still going to get paid. We're still going to, to help through this um, was just incredible. So I, that to me early on, I think um, really helped to, at least for, from my experience with the people that we see coming through our doors at Inspiration Corporation, it really helped to um, stabilize as best we, as best stabilize people as best as we could and as best as they could. Um, it's not to say that, the, that everybody, that people still didn't have issues. Um, you know, people still needed rental assistance. There were still challenges um, in um, making sure that people could stay stably housed, but um, at least there were resources there um, through our organization and through other organizations that, that continued to be funded. Yeah. And one of the things that people ask me a lot is, you know, there's, there's so much to be done. It seems like such a big job and they seem to be a little shy about jumping in somewhere because they don't know, you know, where to go or what to do or how to make a difference. Or, you know, especially right now, it's like, I don't know, you know, how to safely help. And so, um, can you provide some insight maybe as to, at least for Inspiration Corporation, how people can safely partner with you in serving the community? Yeah, I mean, that is a, a great question. And I, you know, so one of the things, and it's a, it's a struggle for our organization, as I, as I think it is for other organizations right now, of, you know, my main concern is I want to keep staff and participants and, it, you know, volunteers safe um, if they're going to be coming on site. So, you know, one of the things that we did is we, you know, we... Um, shut down our volunteer program um, once, you know, back in March. Um, and we haven't really brought the, um, you know, we don't have volunteers that are coming in to help serve um, uh, the food um, and and everything because we want to make sure that we're, um, that we can keep people safe. Um, and so even though we are, you know, doing, you know, everyone's wearing masks and, you know, we're doing all the hygiene and we're trying, you know, having people stay six feet apart while they're in the line waiting to get the food and then having people exit. Um, you know, we're still, um, you know, there it's, we're still, there's still vulnerabilities there. And so I think, you know, we got asked early on, um, you know, we had a lot of, volu- you know, people who were in our volunteer program, like, what can I do to help? And um, so we really have directed that towards, you know, the help in the sense of like, if people want to um, help, we have like an Amazon wish list that helps us get like the, not only the, like the snacks, um, the chips and, and cookies or fruit, you know, uh, the fruit that's in the prepackaged 
I'm trying, I can't think of the names, but, but like the fruit cups, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they want to purchase that um, through Amazon and, and have it delivered to us, that helps us tremendously um, in, in, in reducing our cost and being able to um, meet the need of the number of meals that we need to produce each day. Um, that that's one way to help um, that uh, I think we've had um I think we've had a couple volunteers that um, had been longtime volunteers with us that we talked with them and they were um, they actually made like some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches um, that they could drop off. So it's hard because it's like I, I don't feel comfortable with us saying, yes, come in and, and, and meet directly with participants in our program, um, yeah. which was the experience before. But there's just other ways through, you know, helping us with the, the meals. Uh, the other thing I was going to add was like also like we use a lot of, of the Ziploc bags to put the sandwiches in. So being able to, on the supply side, mm. like if you can provide those type of things, that really helps us keep our costs down so that we can continue to meet the need of the number of people coming in and, and asking for meals in that regard. So, you know, I, I hate to say that, you know, that right now the best thing people can do is provide financial contributions or, you know, or wish, you know, donate um, uh, food and and products, that type of stuff. But, um, you know, that's the safest way that we feel like we can engage volunteers right now. Yeah. I have two final questions for you. One, I want to hear about your staff there at Inspiration Corporation because I'm always, I always love hearing about the people behind the organization. So, uh, tell me a little bit about your staff and and how they help, you know, push the mission of the corporation. Yeah, you know, um, the staff at Inspirate. I am lucky to work with the coworkers that I work with. Um, you know, it's uh, I'm very proud of what. Um, especially just during this pandemic um, of what our staff has achieved. I mean, we basically on, you know, on March 15th, all of our programs had to pivot and, um, and, you know, reinvent themselves in a way that they were still going to be able to fulfill our mission and really to continue to work with people that needed help and to help them meet their needs. And I am just, you know, I'm a bit speechless um, about how quickly um, and how creative, how thoughtful um, our staff was in, in turning this around to say, hey, this is what we can do. Um, this is what we'll need to be able to do that. Um, and just um, and, and that I think the other thing in those conversations is the what was at the forefront um, of those conversations of like, what can we do to support participants in our program. We need to make sure that we're going to, that things are really unstable right now. If we can provide some type of stability, um, that is what we need to do. So um, just an incredible, um, incredible staff. I will also say it's a staff that, um, you know, so I'm an executive director that always has an open door. Um, I encourage people to uh, let me know if I'm you know, it's fine to let me know if I'm doing something good, but if I'm doing something that's not helping you, or if you feel that I'm doing something that's not good, you, you know, let me know. Cause I can only change the things that I know. Yeah. Um, and so I have a staff that um, uh, I work with people that uh, will definitely let me know, um, you know, <laughs> where I need to maybe pick up the pieces a little bit more um, or do, you know, focus in this area. Um, and I think a lot of that, I, you know, what comes to mind around that is, you know, during this pandemic, we've also had, you know, um, the whole country, um, the experience um, with uh, racial injustice and the killing mm-hmm. of George Floyd. I mean, that really um, has hit everyone. And, it, you know, it includes that it hits our staff as well. I have staff that live in all different types of neighborhoods in Chicago. And, you know, I'm on the north side. I had no problem going to a grocery store when the protesting and, and when riots happened. But I had staff on the south side that couldn't go to the grocery store because it had been um, looted or um, everything. And so I think that has been um, probably the biggest challenge um, that I have faced during this um, pandemic and during these times of like how to best support staff. Um, how do you continue, you know, how do you have those conversations? And, you know, we have not, I do not have the answer to that because I am mm-hmm. still, you know, I'm still working on that. And, you know, there's still opportunities for us to do much better in that area. But um, I think, you know, I just, I welcome and I encourage and I appreciate that staff um, 
that I, I work with people that are willing to hold me accountable and hold each other accountable. And yeah. I think that's how we get better. Yeah. I want to hear about the future of Inspiration Corporation because, you know, we all look to see what's <laughs> going to be next. And so I'd love to hear about what your hope for the future is for your organization and your ability to, to serve our people. Yeah. So I think, you know, we, we are in the middle of our, uh, of a strategic plan and, um, that strategic plan is to continue to, um, grow our housing program. So we, um, serve 163 households right now. Um, I think we have about 184, um, uh, apartments that um, we don't own, but we work with landlords and then we uh, provide rental subsidies to those landlords. So we would love to um, uh, expand the number of um, apartments that we have and those partnerships with landlords and serve more individuals and families through that. And really to, you know, our, and really how do we provide like the, the deeper, um, the deeper connections, the deeper service? How do we work with people even after they've become stable um, to like help them to continue to pursue their long-term um, goals? And so how do we provide that support? Um, and in our housing program, we've been looking at how do we also connect um, you know, employment to um, making sure that um, folks in our in our housing program who are interested in becoming employed that we have support for them in, in helping them to achieve that. Um, so that's kind of what we're focusing on in our housing program. Um, with our, um, I will say, with our Inspiration Kitchens, our food service training program, we are a bit challenged in that area right now. Um, I think, as everyone knows, the um, the uh, restaurant industry has been really hard hit um, by the pandemic. Um, but again, we, we have a restaurant that's open to the public that also provides training and paid work experience to um, people who come through our program that are interested in working in the food industry. Um, we have been talking with um, uh, businesses and employers that hire um that have hired in the past and talking with them about, you know, their future needs and kind of thinking about how we can be supportive of that. But again, in our food service training program, we're really looking at how can we work with someone beyond that, you know, the first couple of jobs that they get in the food industry, how can we work with them to really um, fully cement their career um, in the food industry and help them move up into other careers. So, you know, wanting to work with people for a longer period of time um, in that regard. And I think, one of the things that we're, we're looking at um, is that's in our um, strategic plan that we're really just in the beginning at looking at. But I, I think in the future, uh, in the near future, we'll be able I'll be able to say more about it. But we really want to look at um, our meals program and how we deliver meals. And um, one thing we've been looking at is, um, you know, we have done some research that definitely in um, the downtown area of Chicago, that there's definitely people, um, again, all of this was before the pandemic, um, experiencing homelessness and what could be some services um, that we could provide to individuals in the downtown area that's kind of uh, kind of replicating our meals program up on the north side. So, yeah, um, so yeah I think there definitely, um, we definitely want to, get better at what we're doing and then also expand what we're doing um, so that we can serve more people. Great. Thanks, Shannon. We really appreciate that. We want to make sure that we uh, tell people how they can connect with you as well. You can go to inspirationcorp.org to learn how you can uh, get involved. And especially right now, obviously, we know the best way is to give of your resources if you have them. Um, you can also find them on Twitter at Inspiration Corp, or you can find them on Instagram at Inspiration Corporation. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. I really learned a lot from you and I really appreciate you being so vulnerable with us and just sharing about uh, what, what y'all are doing and what you hope for the future. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to join us. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to highlight the, the work that we're doing. And if I shared any wisdom about my experiences growing up and that helps anybody, that's awesome too. Yeah. We appreciate you joining us for this Giving Tuesday season. And we would just encourage you. We know, uh, you know, circumstances may be tough, but, um, you know, any little amount helps. And so if you can give to any of these great organizations, we would encourage you to do so. And we do appreciate that. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.